Welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Van Staden from the University of Johannesburg Center for African Diplomacy and Foreign Policy. Good afternoon, Kobus. Good afternoon.、Uh, today we're going to focus on、uh, a, a really fascinating story that came out of South Africa last week, and it was some comments by the Public Enterprise Minister Malusi Gaba, and he really sounded the alarm on on, on the China Africa relationship once again, bringing up some of the old boogeyman's of imperialism and kind of making references to neo-colonialism, and and really sounding a lot like、uh, Nigerian Central Bank Governor Sanusi Lumida, and、uh, you know, in his comments earlier this year that. Warned that China and Africa are forming this neo-colonial imperial relationship, but really, what's going on here is the fact that there is this word of caution coming. And Cobus is one of the things that you and I have talked about、uh, a number of times over the years. That you know, Africans across the continent. Need to stand up to China and need to set better terms of trade. So when I read his comments, when he's urging caution in the relationship, I actually took it as a very positive thing. Yeah, I did as well. You know, kind of it, it's you know it, it seemed to me kind of、uh, quite kind of clear eyed. You know,、um, it, I think I think it took a less alarmist and more nuanced approach than than、um, you know we've seen some other people take.、Um, So you know, kind of, he, he acknowledged that it's difficult to get funding for infrastructure, and that a lot of the new funding is coming from BRICS members, and particularly from China.、Um, and he then said, "Okay, we should embrace that, but we should embrace it with open eyes."、Um, and then in his in his phrase, "We shouldn't sell our souls," you know, kind of for infrastructure funding, we should do it more on our own terms. And, and I thought that you know, great. You know, but that's exactly yeah. yeah. But he did he let so on the one hand he was more measured. On the other hand, he did call it a new form of imperialism,、uh, you know. And I have a big problem with that word because it really—it's one again. It's like the word colonialism; it doesn't fit in the 21st century. Imperialism implies that you know foreign policy is backed by military power, and that is not what we're seeing in Africa, in particular. So, to me, it's an inappropriate word to describe the China-Africa relationship. If anything, the word to me that fits the best is mercantilism, where China is pursuing a, a very you know business and investment and, and and financial strategy in Africa, rather than an imperial strategy, which at the end of the day is backed by the threat or the presence of military force. So that word really kind of throws me off. Mm, no, I completely agree. It's you know kind of, and, and it tends to ring a bunch of bells that, you know, that that aren't really appropriate. You know, kind of it, it, it you know, it, it calls back to kind of parts of of Africa's history, and it has obviously has a very emotional tone in Africa, and it's it's not really appropriate. You know, kind of it's not really helping anyone. I think people need to be more nuanced about this. Well, let's take a look at some of the comments that he made. So he did really,、uh, you know, a pro and a con. Uh, so he he really talked about you know Chinese pragmatism and I'm quoting here has certainly enabled infrastructure and broader investment in a range of African countries, but in many cases the lack of institutional preconditions to such projects has often resulted in negligible local skills, technology, and business development. And the key word there is institutional preconditions, and I think he's absolutely、hmm. right there that the yeah, Chinese are、completely. coming in and in so and, and and really you know they're they're putting money into the pockets of A number of corrupt leaders, you know, from Joseph Kabila in the DRC、uh, to, to to any number of others, and you know, and this is you know part and parcel of their non-interference. So they say, "We'll give you the money; you do what you want with it." But in return, African leaders are not saying to the Chinese, 
what the Chinese have actually said to other foreign investors in their country. That is, if you want to invest in China, you must do the following: skills transfer, technology transfer. You must, then, you know, sell a certain percentage in the domestic market, certain parts for the foreign market. The restrictions are endless. And I think it's really hypocritical of the Chinese to not kind of either volunteer those kinds of conditions or at the least try to develop them in their African trading partners. Yeah, like this chimes very, chimes very well with what um, Sven Grimm, who we interviewed before and who's at the, the Center for Chinese Studies at, at Stellenbosch University, this week he did an interview, I think with China Daily, where he said that Africans should strategize their own development more. You know, they should, they should get together and and work out a development plan for themselves. You know, kind of, and this is what Gigaba also said, is that it can't also, it can't just be individual governments. They need to think of regional integrated development. Um, and then, you know, kind of speak with the Chinese on those terms and try and, and get as much as they can out of it. Um, and I think you see a little bit of that, for example, in East Africa. You see, you know, kind of... Um, Rwanda, Kenya, and Uganda have, are working together to, uh, with Chinese developers to, to, to set up an integrated rail system that would connect, you know, all three countries. And I mean, that's great. But what you actually now see is that you, the Ugandan government has been so disorganized that they managed to get themselves into a whole lot of legal trouble with a bunch of different, different Chinese, uh, you know, state-owned enterprises all at once, which is now, you know, kind of pretty much <laughs> paralyzing the project. So, you know, Kind of the if if these African governments don't work together as as single regional units, they're not going to get what they need. Yeah, but let me be the you know let me be the jerk here and really you know and I get into this argument all the time, particularly with people from the African diaspora who talk about this dream of the Pan African movement. And we've been you know studying Pan Africanism uh, really since the fifties and sixties when it was a dream, uh, particularly emerging into the into the post colonial era. And it's never been something that's happened. I mean, these governments, you know, in the question of, of East Africa where a rail line, all three of their interests align in a very narrow project. The, the, their, their specific national interests are, are in sync. But take a look, for example, at, you know, the Congo crisis where you've got, you know, four and five countries involved and they, they can't agree on anything. Um, Pan-Africanism has never really panned out. The AU is, to me, relatively weak, and it's intentionally weak by the governments who do not want to have what you have in, 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 in Europe with the EU, uh, where sovereignty is compromised by a, 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 a supranational organization. So I, I'm very, very skeptical. And this is, this is, to me, a pipe dream that you're going to see you know, a country as, as diverse as Nigeria align its interests with Malawi, align its interest with Togo. I, I just don't see that happening. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, I agree because you know, even if you look at regional blocks, there there is a lot of a lot of barriers there. Um, so, for example, Gigaba, in you know, one of the things that he recently mentioned is that Africa needs to find other sources of investment for particular infrastructure investment. They need to find other sources of funding, and one thing that they need to look at, he said, is the pooling of different countries' pension funds in order to to get you know, kind of. To have a, a large pool of money from which to invest in infrastructure, in regional infrastructure. And I can tell you, Africans will like reverse up the wall, you know, before they do that. Like it's, it's not sexy at all. Like the idea of trusting other African states 
with with you know a, a African state's money is you know that, that's not that's not a very attractive uh, you know concept in Africa because there's such low levels of trust between governments and justifiably so we we've we talked about last week how uh, Angola rates at the bottom of Transparency International's corruption perceptions index uh, and and there is no reason to think that the DRC or or a number of other countries will handle other uh, you know pension money responsibly uh, more importantly is that that idea to me is also highly, highly biased towards Africa's emerging industrial economies where you actually have pensions. So you're going to see South Africa, Kenya, Nigeria, and some of these other countries subsidizing rural and agricultural economies who can't contribute because they don't have pensions. So, And that's going to break down because, as you said, why would South African pension holders want to subsidize Malawi in development there? Mm. That doesn't mm. make any sense. So on this question of infrastructure, which he brought up, uh, he, he's mentioned the statistics and we've mentioned this as well. Africa needs, and this is the scale of it, about between 90 and $100 billion per year for the next 10 years to build its infrastructure up to par. So we're talking about a trillion dollars in infrastructure development. So this idea of diversifying the investment and the emphasis on infrastructure, that it's going to come from who else? Again, the United States, he put, you know, Obama came with a promise of $7 billion for, su- for sub-Saharan Africa spread over seven countries or six countries. Yeah. You know, the week after China came into Sierra Leone, tiny little Sierra Leone and dropped $8 billion. So the Americans are not going to be there to give the money. The IMF and the World Bank is completely bogged down in the European Union. So Africa is not the priority for the IMF in, in the World Bank. They're preventing Greece and Portugal and Spain from falling off the map. So the question is, where is this money going to come from? Is Japan going to step up and give you know $100 billion a year? I don't think so. Mm, I'd the, be surprised. The yeah. Indians are not mm. equipped to do that. You know, Politically, for the Indians, for them to give any amount of money is controversial when India itself is still so poor. So this is a little mm. bit of a pipe dream in my point, in my view, that you know the money is going to come from somewhere else. Right now, China has massive... Massive, massive pools of capital that it has to put to use and get out of the country in order to avoid inflation. So when you hear the criticisms, I, I am very, very skeptical. And, and so my question for you is I don't know about Gigaba. Why do you think he said this now? And what are the politics behind his motivation? Yeah, this is interesting. Um, Gigaba has generally been seen as as relatively pro-China or influenced by China anyway. Um, I interviewed him in my days as a journalist. Um, he's a rising power in the in the party, um, and he's a technocrat, which is also you know kind of which is a, a bit rare you know in, in South Africa, um, and he. Um, he was firstly he wanted to use Chinese technology to regulate the internet to try and not have not have pornography on the internet that kind of went nowhere you know kind of obviously um, and then um, when he became public enterprises minister he he, he was behind um, an idea that state owned enterprises in South Africa should be the drivers of infrastructure development so it's a developmentalist state um, model that that was seen as very influenced by China so I I was quite surprised to see him, you know, kind of calling for caution on China. And it might have to do with South Africa's, um, you know, upcoming election, maybe, um, you know, because, um, you know, obviously there, there's higher levels of suspicion about China in South Africa than in other countries, as, as you know, as the, the a recent Pew, um, you know, survey also pointed out. Um, so that might be one one issue, or he might 
he might have you know wanted to kind of join this kind of rising chorus of of you know kind of people calling for caution which i think itself is kind of trendy to do at the moment in africa it is and i i think so i criticize you know his his ideas in, in you know earlier uh now i'll kind of go on the other side and really kind of say how much it gives me hope because as you talked about there is a chorus emerging and it seems to be coming from a new generation of younger leaders uh, so Arthur Mutambara is one. You know, Sanusi Lumida, who's not a younger leader, but certainly, you know, sounding the, the core, you know, sounding the alarm. And now we're hearing from Gigaba. Uh, so I think it's really great that we're starting to see at least uh, a, a public kind of discussion about the nature of this relationship and should it continue on as it has, even if it doesn't result in a pan-African, you know, organization that he, you know, that he's proposing, even if individual governments start to negotiate harder and start to insist on technology transfers. Now, the Ethiopians and the Rwandans have been very good on this. In some ways, they're, they're a leader. So this is, to me, a very, very encouraging trend because the Chinese need Africa as much as Africa needs the Chinese. Uh, and so, so hopefully this will actually lead to uh, a, a healthier trade relationship. Yeah, you know, hopefully. Um, and I think it can't, it can't hurt to be a little bit more hard-nosed, you know, about what you need. It's, you know, Africans need to, to not only think about what they need, they need to articulate what they need. Um, and I think they've been quite, African governments have been quite weak about that, um, to really like make, make, make a list of what, what they need to get out of these, these transactions. And I think it's good to that they're starting to do that. But here's, here's another wrinkle in it. So we've talked about the word Africa, and on many occasions we've said what a, what a really insincere word that is because it really doesn't describe anything. We've got 54 different countries with 54 different agendas and 54 different national interests. Now, when we talk about the Chinese, and he was not specific in this, I assume he's referring to Chinese state-owned enterprises and Chinese official contracts and official investment in infrastructure. But we know, though, China's engagement in Africa and China's investments in Africa are far more diverse than that. And most of it is beyond the control of the central government. Uh, so this is going to be interesting to see how the emerging relationship, you know, pans out. If, if who's going to control these Chinese investors, these private investors, uh, you know, so maybe the, the you know African governments and Chinese uh, the Chinese state come to this agreement. That does not necessarily imply that Chinese businesses will actually follow this. Uh, you know, independent entrepreneurs and whatnot. Yeah, completely. And you know, kind of, I, I was I was frustrated by by his kind of blithe, um, you know, referring to China as as if it's a monolith in the first place, and the old they're shipping over, you know, kind of so many Chinese workers kind of cliche that we've criticised for what feels like ten years now. Um, you know, it's you know we we know from experience that the that Chinese gov, you know, enterprises, even state-owned enterprises, they tend to bring Chinese workers if they don't have any African workers they can use. Otherwise, they use African workers because they're cheaper. So, yeah, you know, kind of, I think uh, that, that part of, a, of what he said seemed to me to be playing to a South African audience. And he said, here's the quote, quote, where armies of Chinese skills and workers have been shipped in to construct the infrastructure. So, I mean, that's, yeah, a, that's um, a, armies of, of Chinese skills and, and, and workers. And, of course, he's following right in the footsteps of President Obama, who said pretty much the same thing. And, uh, you know, Professor Deborah Braudigam, among other scholars, have, you know, have, have gone up and down the continent and have actually proven it through research that the ratio of Chinese to African workers is oftentimes, you know, as low as seven, as high as 13 to 20 to one. 
you know, depending on the studies that you look at. So it really is an old wives' tale that Chinese, you know, are, are importing armies of workers. What I think is happening is that people like, you know, Gigaba, uh, now he may be a cynical politician. I'm not sure what his motivations are for using that. But I think a lot of other people, uh, you know, see Chinese people, ethnically Chinese people, and assume that they have been brought in by the government. And not understanding the subtleties of the differences of, of this population and the diversity of the Chinese immigrant population who, who may be there. So, uh, you know, whether they're independent, whether they're migrants, whether they're, you know, working for the state-owned enterprises and whatnot. So this is a perception problem. And once again, it goes back to the really crappy PR job that the Chinese aren't doing. Um, you know, they're not countering these, these types of arguments. And, and it's really up to Professor Braudigam to be the only one, to, you know, doing it on her blog. I mean, I, I hope she's getting paid by the Chinese government because she is really, <laughs> you know, undermining the, these old wives' tales better than anybody else. But there is a lesson that the Chinese should take from, from Braudigam's blog to, to actually put some data out there and to say these are the facts. And, you know, what Obama is saying, what Hillary Clinton is saying, what Gigaba is saying, just do not align with the facts. So um, let's now look, you know, look to the future here. Who do you see the next kind of warning coming from? Where do you see, because we, we've heard it from Mozambique, we've heard it from Nigeria, we've now heard it in South Africa. Are there other leaders that you kind of can, can pinpoint that might be kind of, you know, following in, joining this chorus, as you said? You know, it's, it's a tough so question, difficult to say. It's, it's a, a very question. yeah. It's it's very difficult to say. It's difficult to pull out names. Um, I think it it would frequently have a lot to do with with the the particular domestic politics and the 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 way that the domestic politics reflects the government's relationship to China. So I wouldn't be surprised if, for example, you know, you hear a vo- more voices like that from Zimbabwe because there's such, you know, there's a uh, you, there's such a strong perception that the Mugabe government is strongly aligned with with China. Um, so I think frequently these these kind of voices tend to reflect resentments that that are actually domestic in nature, um, and then they they sometimes use China as a stick to beat. Other people in power within the same country. But that, that's my that's my feeling. But in yeah. Zimbabwe, it's interesting because you know Morgan Changarai has made his way over to China, and so the Chinese have have really worked hard to build a relationship with the opposition. So it'd be interesting to see in a country like Zimbabwe where that would come from. And in, and I mm-hmm. wonder if the Chinese themselves are trying to foster relationships with some of these opposition figures in a way to to blunt the criticism. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. But certainly yeah. Botswana is probably another one, you know, so we heard... Well, I mean, Botswana already, already has. You already know, has. Already... Yeah, so Botswana seems to be, to be on that list. Malawi seems to be on that list as well. Um, but I think as more, you know, politicians like Gigaba kind of get out there and Sanusi Lumida uh, and Mutambara to kind of sound these kind of very level-headed, rational uh, warnings, that it'll, make, it'll become safer for other countries and other investors, I mean, other uh, leaders to actually, you know, start to say, okay, wait a minute, we, we need to kind of think about this. I also wonder whether, you know, kind of individual careerism might have something to do with it because we now know, you know, from our own, our own work, it's the moment someone in Africa says this that they hit major headlines. They do. You know, um, so when you now, like Google search Gigaba, the first 10 things that come up is Gigaba warning about China. You know, kind of, so, so I think it, it might, there might be a bit of a, like a cynical kind of, uh, way of looking at this as well. You know, kind of that it is individual people trying to, to kind of gain more attention within and outside of the country. Two last points that I want to bring up and get your feedback on before we wrap this up. One is, you know, over the past two weeks, we have received, 
you know, a, a real steady stream of negative economic data coming out of China. And there is growing concern that the Chinese economy is, is not just slowing, but really running into severe problems. Paul Krugman in the New York Times, you know, said, uh, 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 basically implied a crash is coming. And, and what the effect has been in South Africa is the RAND has just been on this roller coaster. And, and it really highlights the vulnerability that South Africa has to its dependence on China. That any time you have Chinese economic data that comes out, the RAND goes up or down based on it. And, and I think that must be very disarming for a number of South Africans who now feel that they are too close to the Chinese economy. And, and that this, you know, this loss of sovereignty of your economic, your economic sovereignty, if you will, because your currency is tied to the economic data of a big power that you can't control, uh, that might be fueling some of this. What's your thought? Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of anxiety about that in South Africa, and it's it's um, exacerbated by the fact that Europe is pretty much lying down and not standing up, um, because traditionally Europe has been South Africa's biggest trading partner. And I think they, you know, in certain in certain sectors they still are. Um, so if there's such bad news coming out of Europe, that makes the Chinese influence kind of even more powerful, you know, kind of so, so a little cough coming from China gives South Africa a cold, you know, kind of in the old cliche. Um, and that becomes even worse in the case where there's such bad news coming from Europe all the time. So it, it makes South Africans feel very, very vulnerable. Now, Michael Sada is an interesting case study here, the president of Zambia, because he was, you know, this is King Cobra. This is a man who in the opposition really made a name for himself and really built his platform around uh, you know, really dramatic, flamboyant anti-Chinese comments. Uh, and in some ways, he remains the poster child for the anti-China movement, despite the fact that it doesn't reflect his, uh, you know, his, his policies at all, which are, in fact, very pro-investment. But he says, I want to have investment that are that on, on terms that are beneficial to Zambia. So I wonder if, you know, being able to kind of throw these ideas out in a speech is one thing, but when you actually come to governing and you face the hard choices that if a Chinese state-owned enterprise finds that, you know, African country X is putting more restrictions and more regulations on and demanding more transfer of skills and, and technology, forcing the costs up of doing business, that they won't go to African country Y. And that fear... Uh, it may be prompting a lot of African governments to kind of roll on their backs and, and, and kind of say, okay, we'll do whatever you want. Yeah, I mean, that might be, you know, or in, in certain perceptions, that is what's playing out in Ghana now. You know, kind of that, you know, the the way that the, the tightening of China, of visa restrictions for Ghanaians to go to China has been has been reported um, in the African press. It's like, oh, this is this is China taking revenge for, for the deportation of all the Chinese illegal miners. So, you know, do you, do you think that that that, that is a you know kind of a makes sense and b you know kind of that that perception that China might be vengeful you know kind of that that would that would that kind of shape this kind of criticism in the no, future no that's I don't think the Chinese are vengeful I think they're pragmatic no I also they? don't think they are I think that is that but, that is but, definitely but an African that, narrative. That is, that is an absolutely mm, exactly, an African but, narrative, and but I, I, I actually, think you know, as an African narrative, it has certain amounts of, of influence within Africa. Hey, listen, That's perception I mean. is reality. I mean, there's no doubt. But the reality, but the truth is, is that the Chinese are, are they're they're pragmatic at the end of the day, mm. and mm. and and what we have to understand is that they are in Africa for very strategic reasons, which is to yeah. support, to acquire the natural resources at the lowest cost possible. And what Africans, I think, oftentimes in the discussion don't. Fully appreciate 
is that if it gets too difficult or it gets too expensive or too complicated, the, the, the Chinese footprint for, for, for natural resources is truly global. And they have choices. Um, and I, you know, so I, I oftentimes, I don't say this as a threat, and I don't mean it as a threat, but when we get into these conversations, like, listen, if you really make it difficult for the Chinese and you don't want them there, they'll go. There are lots of places where they can buy oil, particularly in South America, now in South Asia, now, you know, off the, you know, in, in the Indian Ocean. Uh, so it, it's not exclusive that, that, that they stay, in, you know, in, in country X in Africa. So I think people have to be careful. There is, and, and I think if the Chinese are pushed into a corner, they play hardball, and they're playing by a different set of economic rules than the West is playing by. So, in, in a totally different moral structure that I'm not sure Africans and Latin Americans are entirely familiar with, in part because their experience is largely defined and shaped by dealing with the former colonial powers. So, there's a very different dynamic that's going on here, and it might be more difficult for African governments to impose conditions on the Chinese who, who kind of say, Ugh, listen, this is more expensive. I can go across the border in the Copper Belt to get the same thing that you're offering at you know, 15% less. Yeah, there's also, you know, the, the other issue is, is to which extent are you, to which extent are you a fully fledged economy playing in the world, and to which extent are you the world's charity case, you know, um, and you know, kind of the the amount of skills transfer, the amount of extra investment, the amount of clinics that a, a said company has to also build, you know, in in order to mine copper. I mean that it, it changes one's own. You know, you can demand it, but it, it, it does change your own role. You know, in in the in the transaction, and um, you know, I think I've, that's a very complicated thing that I think you know African governments need to work out for themselves. You know, kind of you can't both be a fully fledged, hard nosed player in the world economy and expect people to care for you, you know, kind of, um, and, you know, striking that balance, I think, is a really hard thing to do. But let me ask you in, in our final question here, what I didn't understand is why did, you know, Gigaba focus exclusively on, on the Chinese? He did mention the BRICS. He started out with the BRICS, and I was kind of hopeful because, you know, that was a, it should be a, a criticism that, that, that's really spread across, but the United States remains a larger investor in Africa than, than the Chinese. Uh, although China-Africa trade is larger than that of the United States, but the United States has invested about $90 billion in Africa. I don't see American-built highways and American-built hospitals and American infrastructure there, and so I'm kind of curious why he didn't level the same criticism uh, against the United States, who is a larger investor in Africa, than he did with the Chinese. What do you think that was? Uh, what was behind that? My feeling was that it had a lot to do with just China-Africa being such a hot topic. Um, you know, I, I obviously don't have any kind of insight into his no, mind, of course not. but but you know, kind of, I mean, for, for the for the same, you know, when you speak about China Africa, you should also talk about China. I mean, Africa's relationship with Malaysia, for example, with Turkey, with Brazil, particularly. Um, you know, and he didn't. You know, kind of, he, he mentioned BRICS and then. He, he moved on to China. So obviously China is a major investor, but I think it also had to do with just people want to talk about China. Africa. Yeah, I mean, it's the um, politics of it, and, and that, that yeah, is interesting, yeah. because, you know, we've talked about with the Ernst & Young you know, attractiveness report that they publish every year, uh, in most countries in Africa, China is not even in the top five of foreign direct investment. 
Um, and mm. so I just I think you know I just I think it's worthwhile to consider that politics and public opinion uh, might be at play here when it comes to talking about the Chinese. That is not to take the Chinese off the hook, uh, absolutely not. But it is to kind of say context is important here. So uh, final thoughts on this topic. Where where do we go from here? Yeah, I think it, I think you know just just as a final thought, I think it might also be. It, it might reflect Africans' need to be at the centre of this, of this, the narrative. Um, you know, kind of in the sense that there's a strong narrative worldwide about the rise of China, perceptions that China is the next centre of the world. And when you talk about China-Africa relationships, that kind of puts Africa at the centre of the world too. You know, kind of so when you start forcing nuances, saying no, but actually China isn't such a big investor, and you also need to talk about these other countries, and it's you know, kind of it starts muddying the waters. While there's a certain pleasure to be taken from talking about you know about kind of putting yourself at the center of, of the story because Africa so seldomly gets to be that, you know. So it, the, there might be a certain amount of like political pleasure to be taken from, from talking this way as well. Well, interesting. What do you think of what uh, the public enterprise minister, Malusi Gigaba, and his comments and his warnings? Do you think what we've said is reasonable, fair, agree, disagree? There is a fantastic forum that we've got going on over on Facebook at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Uh, 90,000 followers. Many of you are listening to the show right now from Facebook uh, and we would love to hear from you what your comments are are you know is he is he accurate is he right to insist on on stronger trade terms or does is Africa not strong enough each individual African country not strong enough to negotiate those terms what do you think we'd love to hear from you uh, Kobus if people want to follow you on Twitter or uh, on Facebook where can they find you I'm on our Facebook page and I try to update every day. Um, and I'm also on Twitter at Stardenesk. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And on our Facebook page, you actually talk to both Kobus and me. You actually see we bracket our names there so you know who you're talking to. We do come at it with some different opinions and perspectives. So uh, feel free to kind of fire back at us and because we enjoy the discussion and the debate. If you'd like to follow what I'm doing over on Twitter, I'm at E-O-Lander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm tweeting the top China and Africa headlines almost every day. And of course, I'm also on Facebook. If you'd like to follow our podcast, the best way to do it, of course, is on iTunes. Uh, we'd love for you to leave a comment. Uh, tell us what you think. Give us a rating. It helps us improve our discovery for other users. Uh, but we can also find you can also find us on SoundCloud, uh, you know, over on Stitcher and on the BlackBerry network, particularly those of you in South Africa who listen on BlackBerry mobile phones. So that'll do it for this edition of the China and Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.